and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Donnie, thank you, Elizabeth, earlier, and all those that got Christmas music ready for us today and this whole month. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. And as you turn there, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but during Christmas time, not only with our own choir and orchestra when we do Christmas at the Tabernacle, I so enjoy that, seeing the singers and the uh, uh, great songs of Christmas sung uh, with... Uh, accompaniment from an orchestra, the strings and the wind and the percussion instruments, all those things blessing the audience. And I like to get extra of that, so I'll go on YouTube and to various channels that are on, you know, and hear Handel's Messiah done and Ave Maria sometimes, the beautiful Catholic prayer song, you know, and those things. But uh, I can't help but think about those symphonies and choirs singing together and what a great picture they are of the body of Christ in action. You know, a symphony is a composition of different elements. They're brought together under a skillful conductor's hand who orchestrates, orchestrate means to arrange, arranges the different elements to produce his or her desired effect. And I love when that happens. And in just a moment, we're going to read Luke 2, 1 to 20, one of the simple places we see the Christmas story in the Gospels. And as I read, I want you to look for the conductor's hand leading us through the text. And the different movements as prophecies from days gone by, ancient times, are fulfilled in actual time. And as the angel and the choir of angels is brought in and the shepherds bring the holy child and his parents, the gifts that were there. And I just couldn't help but compare that to the great movements in a symphony or an orchestra arrangement. Luke chapter 2. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea. So even though Nazareth is north of Judea, when you go down toward Bethlehem, you're going up because you're going up toward God's holy place to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, mega fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of mega joy. Mega fear turned to mega joy. Good, and I say mega because that's the way the Greek word looks right. That It's an amazing word, Henry. I, ho- I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day 
in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem. Some translations read, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Let's get there quickly and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, just like Mary had gone with haste to make this confirmation with Elizabeth that they were both pregnant at the word of the angel. She went with haste. They went with haste, these shepherds, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The symphony of Christmas, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the singing that we've done together and the songs that have been sung to us, how we've thought two different times about what Mary was thinking, God. Thank you for the symphony of Christmas. Thank you that you brought it all together that beautiful day there in Bethlehem, Lord God. Thank you that you brought together the ancient prophecies. You brought together the decree of current kings. You brought together shepherds and wise men. You brought together all the things related to the hope that we have of eternal life because of what Christ has done. It's a John 3.16 symphony, and we thank you for bringing it to pass. We thank you for the conductor's hand still at work in our days, the Holy Spirit working, working even now to draw people to know Jesus, the true reason for this season, God. Lord, we love to give and exchange gifts. Lord, may we do a gift exchange with you. May we receive you into our hearts and may we give you the throne of our lives to follow you as Lord all of our days. Bless us this Christmas. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to look at three movements within this symphony that's presented to us here in Luke chapter 2. The first seven verses, we're going to look at the all-encompassing conductor's leadership. So what does a great conductor do? A great conductor brings together these different elements to produce his or her desired effect. And you've seen the moment the conductor steps up, right? Steps up to the podium and they've got their baton there. It looks like a wand, you know, and they're ready to go. They click it a few times on there and everybody's in attention before them. They're going to do their part in what the conductor's bringing together. And the audience is waiting to see this thing come to life where before they were just kind of tuning up. And it's so beautiful when that happens. And I can't help but think about how our God is the greatest conductor of them all. Amen. He creatively created the entire universe out of nothing and sustains it without breaking a sweat. So not only is he the creator of all things, he's the sustainer of all things. And in a symphony, there are sometimes what look like a, a chaotic series of movements down in the orchestra pit or up in the choir. But the conductor ties it all together to bring together that desired effect. So look again at verse 1 here in Luke chapter 2. It says, In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And in verse 3, it lets us know that all people in Rome and its occupied territories had to return to their ancestral homes to be counted. And obviously, this census would be used in some areas for military recruitment so Rome could continue to fight 
uh, fight people and stuff like that, just like uh, uh, you know we do today. People are counted so we can know who to recruit if we have to do a draft or something like that. But it was also, of course, used to generate taxes so Roman roads could be paved and Roman buildings could be built and all those different things. Verse 2 lets us know that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, it's interesting because he's probably the one ruler that ruled two times that archaeologists tell us about. So archaeologists have discovered that in the Syria region during those days, there was actually somebody that ruled uh, twice in two different times, just like that president, you know, that had two different times with a middle time where he wasn't the president and stuff. Um, And so Quirinius was probably that guy. And it says that the census was decreed and that this fellow was the one that was the governor doing it in that area of the world during that time. It's probably the census that Rome called for about 8 BC, but it wasn't times of uh, cyber technology then. It probably took two to four years to be carried out as far away as they were there in the Syrian region. And so probably between 6 and 4 BC or about 750 on the Roman calendar. The Roman calendar counted up from the days that the Roman city had been established and it was about the year 750 on the Roman calendar when all of a sudden this census was called for and these things came to pass. For Roman purposes, Israel uh, was part of the Syrian district and itself there were three districts uh, also within that district uh, of Israel, Judea, Samaria and Galilee were sub-districts in there and that's why you hear about them talked about as different regions with different rulers as you go through the Gospels. What was happening was this, human rulers were making decrees to advance their empire's interests. They didn't care about fulfilling prophecy. They were just wanting to raise money or raise up an army. But the divine conductor was at work to bring to pass ancient prophecies to advance the kingdom of God, which is how he works. You know, I think everybody ought to take some time. I think all Christians specifically should take some time to read some of the writings of other religions. Um, You know, I'm not afraid of truth. The only truth is in the Bible, you know, the everlasting truth in there. So I encourage people to read a little bit in the Koran to read a little bit in what Buddha taught and read a little bit about Confucius and Hindu writings and things like that. And what you'll see is that none of those have anything like predictive prophecy. None of them has anything like God writing history in advance. That's what prophecy is. Where God, hundreds and even thousands of years before the fact, gets put into writing what is going to happen hundreds and thousands of years later. The Bible is the only thing like that. Um, Nostradamus said some things that can be interpreted lots of different ways about things that would happen in the future and they look toward those but as far as religious writings goes only the Bible has predictive prophecy and it is so profound that the Hebrew scripture had actually all been translated into the Greek language two or three hundred years before Christ came and so not only are we certain that it was written and said in, the, in advance. It was translated in advance. And so we know the prophecies of Micah and Isaiah and all the scriptures were actually in advance of this key and wonderful time that now was coming to pass. And only the Bible has those predictive prophecies in which God tells the future in advance. It shows us two things about him. He's not bound by time. He's the one that speaks about these things happening in the fullness of time, but he's not bound by time. 
Because of his omniscience, he knows all things, including the choices that everybody's going to make. Because of his omnipotence, he's able to bring to pass exactly what he wants to come to pass and factor in human choices and thwart them. You know, most of us are playing checkers. We can see a few moves ahead, but God is like the master chess player uh, who every move that we make, every thought that we think, everything that we say, he is able to factor in after that all that will come to pass afterwards by the result of our choices and our sayings and things like that. And he's able to make what he wants to come to pass come to pass on the other side of it. It really blows your mind when you think about it. But in this case, the prophet Micah, 700 years before Jesus was born, about the same time the city of Roman was just a couple decades old, uh, prophesied Israel's Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. You've seen the prophecy, Micah 5.2 says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, yea, from everlasting. Isn't that wonderful? That prophecy says, one who is from everlasting will be born in Bethlehem. What a powerful, powerful prophecy. Look at verses 4 and 5 here. It says, And Joseph also went up to Jerusalem from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the town of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. Now, When we look at Matthew's gospel, we know that both Joseph and Mary, Mary first, then Joseph, had heard from an angel that her virgin birth was the fulfillment of God's promise to bring Emmanuel into the world. And Emmanuel means God with us. And so we knew they knew about that. Um, They knew they were to name him Jesus, which means God saves because he would save his people from their sins. So God was with us to save us. That's what Christmas is all about. The simplest way to define Christmas or Christmas, the Christ Mass, our Catholic friends brought the word Mass into it because it's a service usually for this time of year. The Christ Mass, so we call it Christmas. But the simple way to define Christmas is God came to us to save us. That's what Christmas is all about. Now, Joseph and Mary probably knew a little bit from their Sabbath Sabbath school days, you know. Uh, They probably knew a little bit about the Micah prophecy as well. But verse 5 tells us the specific reason Joseph brought his very pregnant wife Mary to Bethlehem because he wanted to be in compliance with Rome's law. The emperor had said everybody needs to do it. And so he said, well we got to do it. We don't have a choice. There's no loophole for us. Apparently, there wasn't a pregnancy loophole where things could wait. And so despite the time it was, they went to Bethlehem, where he was from, to be registered like everybody else as part of what was going on in the world in that day, government laws you had to comply with. Now, along the way, I'm sure they were struggling a little bit. I I bet they were struggling to balance God's promises somehow being worked out through them in their generation with the hardships of the trip on pregnant Mary and their frustrations with Roman occupation that all the Jewish people had at that time and how they, uh, you know, wondered how Israel had gotten so far from God that they were in this situation. It must have all been quite chaotical. I mean, think about it roads swollen with traffic going in all directions while they were going south others were going north everybody was getting to where they needed to be Mary being bounced around on the donkey you know as it went over difficult terrain energetic kicks from the baby growing inside of her 
And Joseph and Mary, remembering the judgmental stares perhaps they had experienced back in Nazareth when it turned out that an unmarried woman was pregnant like that. As verses 6 and 7 tell us here in Luke chapter 2, when they got to Bethlehem, there was no place for them in the inn. So they had to stay in the worst Airbnb ever. I bet you Joseph and Mary gave it one star afterwards, you know. I mean, uh, perhaps it was a cave behind the inn that the animals stayed in, you know. It certainly was no place for a king to stay, no place for the king of kings to stay. But uh, no one can say that Jesus can't relate to them because Jesus can relate to anyone. He had the most humble possible of births and early lives. And even the offering that his parents brought when they did dedicate him at the temple showed that they were among those who were poor, not those that were richer. What a humble reception for the king of kings and his earthly parents. No kind of reception for a very important person or a king, let alone the king of kings. Everything must have seemed so out of control. So Joseph and Mary were doing what they had to do living in Rome and occupied Israel. But the divine conductor was at work behind the scenes to bring to pass these ancient prophecies to advance the kingdom of God. Some of you have wonderful looking quilts in your home and you don't show the backside. You don't put that out for people to see. You show the side that looks finished, right? But on the other side are all those places that the stitches had to come together. And sometimes as we're going through life and time seemed difficult and sometimes for them on that way to Bethlehem it must have seemed like they were looking at the backside of a quilt that didn't make sense. But when it gets turned over and you see what the design is, all of a sudden you understand what the divine conductor had in mind. You know that same divine conductor is working in your life now? no matter how chaotical things seem. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe what I just said? Somebody said, well, Danny, I wasn't really listening. Say it again. <laughs> the same divine conductor is working in your life right now, no matter how chaotical things seem. So let me ask you again. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you're trying to be the conductor of your own life, you don't believe that. I don't care whether you said yes just now or not. And if you are the conductor of your own life, you're never going to have the kind of joy and peace the divine conductor brought into the world with Jesus. You're just not. Uh, you know, when we think about it that way, we're talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him as Lord, if you just know him as hell insurance, if you've just said, well, I received you, God, so I know I'd go to heaven when I die, but I'm really the Lord of my own life, I'll conduct my own life, thank you then life will always remain chaotical because you're not that good. I'm not that good. Man, it's so wonderful to know that there's a divine conductor we can turn to and he is omniscient. We don't know all, but he knows all. He knows what he wants to come to pass, what he will make come to pass. He knows the joy you'll have in getting in on it or the sense of frustration you'll have if you're always fighting his leadership in your life. And that divine conductor is at work with them. Folks, your sense of joy and peace will be totally dependent on your circumstances if you don't trust the divine conductor. And when bad ones come, you're going to be miserable and you're going to turn to your addiction of choice to cope with your lack of true peace and joy. For some people, that's alcohol or drugs. Um, for others, that's sex addiction. For others, that's gambling or something else. And if you continue to fight God over being the divine conductor of your life, then what's going to happen is you're going to continually get to that place where life seems out of control. 
because God didn't intend you to conduct your own life. You don't know enough to. You just know what's before you. And many of you live right there. Whether they knew it or not, whether you know it or not, there's an all-encompassing conductor's hand leading. But next we see in verses 8 through 14, there's the all-inspiring angelic choir that sings. In verse 8, we're introduced to the shepherds watching their sheep at night in the fields outside of Bethlehem. You ever spend time meditating on those shepherds? I'll tell you what, it's one of my favorite things to think about every Christmas time is those shepherds. Uh, because they were watching their fields outside of Bethlehem. And they did it night, they did it day, they did it all kinds of times. That's what they did. But it reminds me of another one that had been a shepherd outside of Bethlehem and became one of Israel's greatest king. Who am I talking about? David, the shepherd king, right? And as much as I enjoy thinking about shepherds in the field, I'm doing even more this year because back in November... I had a chance to travel to Kenya and had a chance to teach pastors there, Maasai warrior pastors, and you know all of them double as shepherds. They all know about caring for animals. They all know about uh, on cold nights, they got to bring the animals in even if it means their kids are back basically sleeping out on the porch or whatever. You know, They've got to care for those animals and all those different things. So they know about crowded rooms with people and animals in them and different things like that. And I learned so much from them. Sometimes they'd ask a question of us, and I thought, wait a second, you're living in Kenya. Kenya's in the Rift Valley. Israel's in the Rift Valley. Some of the questions you're answering, you know how better to answer than I do because you've experienced what an acacia tree is. You see it all the time around you, you know. Acacia, is it acacia, mom? Acacia. Yeah, acacia tree and those things. Um, It's around you all the time, and so you know more about those things. Learn so much about shepherding. But the shepherds of verse 8, were in some of the same fields that a thousand years earlier, David the shepherd boy had taken care of sheep in. And I bet you, since there wasn't Netflix and there wasn't Amazon Prime and HBO Max and those other things, I bet what the shepherds did is they told stories to each other. And I bet one of the stories they loved to talk about was the story of the shepherd boy who became king. (laughs) Can you see him out there? How when he was a shepherd boy, he had fought off lions and bears, oh my, as they tried to harm the sheep, you know. I bet they would sing Psalm 23 to each other because the Psalms were originally sung about how the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. And I bet they loved to work their way through that and say, yep, we do that. We've got a rod, we've got a staff, we've got oil to deal with parasites in the ears of the sheep that we put in there and the parasite comes to the top and we pluck it off and we've got the uh, staff to corral them back when we need to and the rod to beat off the predators when they come and those things. I bet they spoke of David's exploits as warriors and kings. You've got to know they told the story of David and Goliath. And uh, maybe some of them were skilled on the stringed instruments the way David was with the harp. Uh, And uh, they'd pull out that every once in a while as they were watching their sheep. I bet they told the sad tale of David's sin against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And how David had to deal with the consequences because of that. What a cautionary tale for any would-be leader or any would-be godly person that you can be a person after God's own heart one moment and committing gross sin the very next. I bet they would sing Psalm 51 after that, David's great psalm of repentance after that sin. I bet sometimes they quote Psalm 32 to each other that says, how blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then I bet one of them would remind them, you know, these, you know where these sheep we're caring for are going, don't you? <laughs> these are sacrificial sheep. 
they're going to make the six-mile trip to Jerusalem, and some of them, well, pretty much all of them, are going to be offered as temple sacrifices. When a sinner comes and realizes they've sinned against God and they go to the temple and they stand before the priest, the, the priest is going to have that person put his hands on top of that sheep's head and confess their sin because they're so burdened about their need for forgiveness and what they've done against God. That person's going to come and they're going to put their hands on top of that sheep's head and then that little lamb is going to be slaughtered. So the blood can atone for their sins, but only temporarily, only temporarily. I don't know if one of them knew enough from Sabbath school to then say, you know what it says about the son of David, the Messiah to come one day, don't you? Uh, The prophet Isaiah said that it's all we like sheep that have gone astray. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. Talking about the future king to come, the son of David that was born here in this little town of Bethlehem that we watch the sheep for outside of it. I bet the stars were very visible to those shepherds on those nights. You know, you get outside in town or a city a little bit, what do you see? You see the sky better, don't you? And they didn't have near the night pollution like we have with electric lights and things like that. But I bet those stars were so big and so bright at night there deep in the heart of Judea. I imagine them singing Psalm 19 that David had written And it inspired. David had sat under those same stars. He'd laid under those same stars caring for sheep a thousand years earlier. And he'd looked up into the sky and he said, the heavens, (laughs) the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. And the next verse talks about how they're preaching to us. There's a God. There's a God who created it all. There's a God who sustains it all. And I wonder if they got as excited in their day a thousand years later as David had in his about those stars and the God that made those stars. Maybe, Eddie, maybe they weren't thinking about any of those things. Maybe they were just tired out. Maybe they were just tuckered out. Maybe they were wore out because of the constant work it took to be a shepherd, 24-7 care. Always something with the sheep. Man, those dumb sheep, you know. (laughs) Always something, always something. Getting off and going this way and you have to go and corral them back and all those different things. Constant need, cares, there's viruses to worry about, there's all kinds of predators out there and different things and just constant care. Regardless of their state of mind, the divine conductor, what he was doing was bringing to pass the next big movement in the symphony of Christmas. Look at verse 9. It says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great, the words mega, with mega fear. Wow! There's so much here. Their silent night was shattered. All of a sudden, they see an angel. That would have been scary enough, and angels have to say, fear not, because when an angel showed up, they were very afraid. This is different. This is new. What's going to happen here? Just like you see a police officer the first thing you don't think is, oh, wow, it's so wonderful that law enforcement takes care of everything around us. The first thing you think is, what did I do wrong? Am I going too fast? You look down at the speedometer and those different things, right? You see an angel, a representative of God. For them, it was like, what what have we done that we're about to be judged, that God would send an angel, a messenger before us or something like this? Um, What have we done? The darkness was illuminated as the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, I don't know if you know how significant that is. 
There's so many wonderful things to talk about at Christmas, we often miss it. But back in 586 BC, when Babylon had ransacked Israel and Nebuchadnezzar had decided it was time to uh, just completely take things over in Jerusalem and, and uh, take the temple worship away from them. Just before that, Ezekiel the prophet tells us that God looked into his temple and saw people worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and all those pagan gods. The priests that were supposed to be worshiping God were worshiping these pagan gods instead. Man, I hope when God looks into the tabernacle, into our Sunday school classes, into our homes, into how we do our workplaces and recreational things and things like that. He doesn't see people that are worshiping idols and worshiping pagan things rather than worshiping God. God looked in and he said, I, I, I'm, I just, I can't even. <laughs> I don't know if God said that or not, Hope, but it's fun to think about, isn't it? I can't even. And it says in Ezekiel, that the glory of God that was over the ark lifted up, went outside the Holy of Holies, went outside the temple, went outside the courtyard, went outside the gates of Jerusalem, and left. The glory had departed. 600 years had passed. No glory of God. No presence of God showing up with Shekinah glory like that. So when this verse says that all of a sudden in Israel once again, in the fullness of time, when it tells us right there that the glory was back, it is very, very significant. The glory had returned, but not at the temple. Now, there was a prophecy that said, the Lord will show up. The Lord will bring the glory to the temple. And, of course, Jesus had some interactions at the temple, didn't he? But this first time back, you've got these shepherds, these outcasts of society, out watching in their fields, perhaps quoting David, perhaps not. But all of a sudden, an angel spoke to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and it must have been so amazing. Shining around them like the pillar of fire in Israel's past. And we've never experienced anything like that. Neither had the shepherds. They were terrified. They were filled with mega fear. And that's why in verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you not news of judgment, but I bring you gospel. I bring you good news of great joy, of mega joy that won't just be for Israel. This will be for all peoples. Not just religious people like the priests who offer the sacrifices in Jerusalem and the teachers who know the Tanakh inside and out, but for social outcasts like you shepherds. The gospel good news is for all people. And it started there with these shepherds. The Messiah had come. He says, unto you is born this day in Bethlehem, the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread. That's the perfect place for the bread of life to be born, amen? Coming to the house of bread, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus said, if you partake of me, you'll never hunger again. You'll have eternal life kind of bread. Just like Micah and the other prophets had said, the Messiah is now here. And to those shepherds, it was made clear that this could all be confirmed by the shepherds if they just went to Bethlehem now. 
where they would find this child wrapped up and lying in an animal's feeding trough. (laughs) Now that was certainly a lot for simple working men to process, but the divine conductor wasn't finished yet. Look at verse 13. It says, suddenly, everybody say suddenly. It's one of Luke's favorite words, suddenly. He loves to show when it happened, it was on. It was on. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, an army of angels filling the sky before the shepherds and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those who he has shown his goodwill to. Uh, Those are hard words to translate and how they bring about. You know, you've heard from Charlie Brown Christmas and other things forever today, peace and goodwill to men. And it looks like he's specifically saying shalom to those whom God graces. Shalom to those whom God favors. And we could say shalom to those who let God favor them, who receive this message that is coming to you and to your hearts and to the world. You got to wonder what those shepherds must have been thinking. You know, uh, I think about an Old Testament occurrence of angelic activity when Elisha's servant was troubled because outside of them there was so much trouble the forces of the enemy were right there before them and Elisha said I ain't got time for this God opened his eyes opened his eyes and he opened his eyes and he saw these huge fierce looking warrior angels ready to do the bidding of God and Elisha had said there's more with us than with them well there's just two of us oh there's a multitude of angels ready to serve and help the prophet here And how powerful that was. That's what I think of when I think. Because when the heavenly hosts show up, you're thinking about those fierce angels. And I'll tell you what, if we were in trouble with God, if we'd sinned against God as a people, and all of a sudden the sky opened and there was an army of the heavenly hosts before us, uh, we would tend to to be terrified and frightened. Oh no, God's judgment day has come. He's right to judge us. Here they are to judge us. So that's what these angels are going to announce, right? This army of angels is going to announce the judgment sinners deserve, right? No. Instead, they announce God's terms of peace offered to those who will repent and receive Jesus. Wow! Double wow! Triple wow! Wow to infinity! I can't help but think about, amen, to infinity and beyond. I can't help But think about how God likes to have angels singing when key moments happen. Oh, goodness. Moments of creation and redemption. I think of what God said to Job when he created the earth. Have you ever seen this verse? Look at this. Job 38, 7. It says, when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. God says, Job, you weren't there. You've got questions for me. But, and isn't it interesting? The book of Job, he's got lots of questions for God because of his circumstances. And sometimes we say, I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to ask God a question or two. Well, in the book of Job, when God shows up, he's got about 100 questions in a row for Job. And then Job says, never mind. <laughs> now that I've heard from you, never mind. I, I'm, I'm with you, God. Combination of fear and love that God wants us to have. That awe of him that submission to him, that love for him and his perfect plan unfolding. But one of the things God says to Job about creation, he says, were you there when I created everything? When the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. The only place I've come close to seeing this captured well was in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia where he pictures a new world being created and the angels singing and singing and singing as that world was created. Were they singing, how great thou art? They might have been. 
They were singing just wonderful hymn of praise after hymn of praise to God as creator. But here we have the Bethlehem sky, that silent night being shattered. These angels all of a sudden saying they must have been singing. And here they are. And they're doing so beautifully at it. They're talking about creation matching redemption. A new creation moment has come because the divine conductor doeth all things well. So in this Christmas symphony, we see the all-encompassing leadership of the conductor. We also see the all-inspiring angelic choir sing. But before we go back out there in the cold, let's see the quick-acting shepherd's movement, verses 15 through 20. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, when the angels went away into heaven, you talk about the close of the show, right? Can you imagine after all that brightness, all that beauty, all that announcement before them, all of a sudden the sky closing again and it was just the dark and the stars? Whew, you talk about your letdown <laughs> after seeing that. But it says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see if this thing has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And it says, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the animal's feeding trough. <laughs> you know what I can't get over here? The book of Galatians says that God came in the fullness of time. He came at the perfect time to earth as baby Jesus. And I'm so glad, this is what I thought of the last couple of days, I'm so glad the first Christmas didn't happen in the United States of America in the year 2022. I fear that our response in these days of distraction, these days of coddling our pet sins and not really responding to the Lord the way we should, I fear in these days of distraction that our response would be different. We would say, you know... I'm slightly intrigued by this message from heaven. I'm somewhat interested in what I just heard. I actually feel like this Holy Spirit or something is stirring inside of me. But I'm so busy. And there's so much to do. And what about all these responsibilities that I have? When and if I get some free time and my priorities aren't getting in the way... I will go to Bethlehem and check these things out if I don't have anything better to do. God help us. That's how America is responding to the gospel right now. That's how our world is responding to the message of Christmas and the gospel that goes along with it right now. Isn't that what you sometimes do? God's spirit is calling you to salvation, but you aren't making haste to the altar. You're not making haste to talk to somebody that knows Jesus so you can make peace with God as you talk with them and then help you pray and receive Christ. Isn't that what some are doing uh, in your obedience to Christ and things he's laying clearly on your heart? Jesus has commanded you as a new believer to get baptized, but you just keep delaying. You're like, I don't know, it's water and scary and, you know. You're not making haste to obey. How about God is calling you to a specific area of service, but you won't be inconvenienced. You won't adjust your schedule. You say, if I can find time later on, if, 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 if and, and for many of you, that time never comes. Man, if Jesus had come now, that's kind of how we'd be. I, I just don't have time. Yeah, that was an impressive light show. Impressive, impressive show there, church. Impressive show there, God of the church. Uh, but, but I don't have time. Folks, we will know when revival comes. People will start acting like these shepherds. 
they will make haste to turn from their sin and run to see Jesus. Delayed obedience to Jesus will become the exception rather than the norm. And I just hope right now the Holy Spirit's hitting your heart like a lightning bolt. Whatever the matter is between you and God, where you're saying, nope, not now. I've got too many other priorities. Because if you do, you're trying to be the conductor of your own life. You're the Lord of your own life rather than one submitting and making haste to get things right with God. Look at verses 17 through 20. It says, when they saw it, when they saw Jesus, they made known the saying that had been told them about Jesus. These shepherds became evangelists. And it doesn't matter if you're a shepherd or not. When you really get right with Jesus, you can't help but share this good news with others. Christmas always gets me excited because I was saved at Christmas time. Got a text today, or last, actually it was last, yesterday, Merry Christmas from Doug Barr. And Doug Barr's the most wonderful person in the world to me because Doug brought me to church and I heard about Jesus and was saved. And I've been telling about people, my, Jesus myself, ever since. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I'm so glad they shared with Mary because she was probably still confused. And even though there started to be these confirmations, you can never get enough if God wants to use other things to help confirm that he's at work in your heart and life. When we tell what God has done for us, it encourages others. These shepherds are now providing pastoral encouragement to others. And that's all the word shepherd means. Psalm 23 could be the Lord is my pastor because a pastor is a shepherd, a shepherd's a pastor. And for every believer, God has some shepherding area for you. Parenting your children, being with your friends and your coworkers. Uh, they have needs and you get to help be a shepherd of them, pointing them closer to Jesus rather than farther away. Oh, to be like these shepherds. When they returned to their normal lives, they were still glorifying, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen. And what if an army of us were so just in love with Jesus and so thankful for what he'd done that all week long we were singing his praises, glorifying him. People could see it in our countenance. They could see it in the way we treat them with dignity and respect, even if they violently disagree with us. They saw us doing acts and gestures, washing feet, and being as generous as the tabernacle is around Christmas, offering time. Would we make a difference in Danville? Would we make a difference in the world? Oh yeah, revival would have come. May it come to me. Oh, to be like those shepherds, going to Jesus in prayer, confirming God's truths in the Bible, sharing what we experience with others, continuously glorifying God for being the great conductor of salvation's offer to mankind. Whew. May it be so. May it be so. May it be so. Maybe you're here today or watching online and you're like the shepherds. You're, you're a down and out person. <laughs> you don't have to nickels uh, rubbed together and uh, the shepherds they had almost nothing that's why they were shepherding man they'd rather done just about anything else that was hard work for social outcasts and stuff they were working to you know because they had to do it you know and maybe some of you are down and out Jesus came the message came first to the shepherds right the glory was back with them the wise men came after that and they brought cool gifts. <laughs> they were the cool uncles. You know, they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were up and out. Maybe some of you are up and out. You got a lot of resources, but you're empty inside. You've been so busy worshiping yourself and uh, all your toys and believing lies like he who dies with the most toys wins and things like that. But it's amazing how the cross brings 
the down and out and the up and out together, just as the cradle did. So the shepherds get there, the wise men get there, and they both discovered that Jesus was greater than anything else this world had to offer. And they all worshiped him that day. And God's calling you to be a worshiper. The cross is also a great evener out for people because at the cross we discover, you know, Christmas message should be as offensive as the Easter message is, the cross message. Because God had to come into the world because we needed saving. We were lost. We didn't need God to just come and be a good example for us, although Jesus is our perfect example. We were lost and drowning in sin and what he did for us through the cradle all the way to the cross, his perfect life lived on earth and dying for our sins. <laughs> Man, that's the only hope we have of salvation because if it's up to us, we've had it. We've rebelled against heaven. We are rebels against him. And here's God coming and the angels announcing, listen, instead of God being angry at you, he is willing to take out the wrath due you on his own dear son because Jesus has come to do something for you you couldn't do for yourself. And so we celebrate at Christmas. It's for everyone. Good news of great joy for all people. Bring yourself to Jesus like the shepherds did. Seek him like the wise men did. Repent and believe for the kingdom of Jesus is at hand. Go straight to Bethlehem see and act for the rest of your days. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.